This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. Do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary, the men and women who were incarcerated here. My name is Anthony, and I'm speaking to Sky. How you doing, Sky? I am good. I am good. How are you? Oh, not too bad. You know, I ended last week on a very chipper tone. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, everybody. I hope I hope everybody's tuning back in again this week. And I have another really depressing story to share. Well, I guess at least uh, we're starting with it this time. Yeah, it's a fascinating one. So let's get to it. Uh, my sources today, Inmate Files from the Idaho State Archives, Ancestry.com, Idaho Daily Statesman Articles, Newspaper.com, Casetext.com for State versus Golden from the Supreme Court of Idaho, December 4th, 1947. The September 1947 edition of Master Detective, uh, like a pulp magazine, with a story titled The Mildred Ruscio Case by Gustave Pearson. So, like most stories at the prison, I came across this one entirely on accident a few years ago while investigating this little mystery. So it had rained, and as I was walking to and opening the prison yard in the morning, I noticed this really faint set of initials in the year 1949 in front of number three house, just outside, just to the left of the door as you go into three house. And so I started asking around, asked my boss, you know, have you ever seen this? Have you ever looked into it? And no one had noticed it. So I was like, okay, not, I love mysteries. I'm going to dig into this. So I spent probably too long combing through the prisoner indexes, looking for the initials RG from that time period. And that's when I came across this story. And, you know, of course, you know, I've discussed Charles Sandusky in a previous episode and seeing CCS right in front of the territorial prison slash chapel. And I found in that file that Charles Sandusky had CCS tattooed on his forearm. And so I don't have that sort of evidence here, but I think, I don't know, we'll get to it. I, th- I think I, I found the right person. This is Ralph Dismas Golden, number 7070, 7070. Ralph Golden was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on March 21, 1922 to Herbert and Hannah Golden. His father was from England and came to the United States as a child and actually served in the United States Army in World War I. And he ended up, he worked at the Reading Railroad in Philadelphia as a roadmaster through most of Ralph's life and retired through them. His mother was actually born and raised in Philadelphia and she was basically a housewife. 
Ralph only had one brother who was two years older than him, but he noted that they were never really very close. The family were devout Catholics, and that was something that Ralph kept with him throughout most of his incarceration. He had a good home, lots of support from his parents, and had a a pretty trouble-free childhood. He played sports, he enjoyed card games, seeing historical movies, and he liked to dance. He remained at home and did well in school in Philadelphia, but dropped out in the 10th grade because he reportedly wanted to go to work. He was always bigger than the other boys in his school, so when he told the Pennsylvania National Guard at the age of 16 that he was actually 19 years old, they believed him and actually accepted him into the service. Which is like, it's like so crazy though that you didn't have to submit any sort of like verification. Like you just could be like, yep, I'm 19. Mm -hmm. And they were like, sounds good. Come on in. Right. Yeah. I mean, he, he said that he was born June 11th, 1919. I found the registration card, which, you know, he was actually born March 21st, 1922. So he made it no problem. And he was basically following the path of, of his father and his brother, who had both served in the United States Army. So from the National Guard, he actually was inducted into the United States Army on June 27th, 1941. And he got into a little bit of trouble. He was actually brought west and stationed at Gowan Field here in Boise. He got into trouble. He went AWOL for leaving his post while on guard duty before being properly relieved, and he spent a little over a month in confinement from November 10th, 1941 to December 31st, 1941. This is his only write-up, his only misstep while on the service. And while most were sent overseas during World War II, Ralph actually remained and did his entire service here at and served at Gowan Field. He was actually in the military police. So part of the reason he may have gone AWOL was his fiancée, who is Miss Eldine Bunch of Boise, and they were married on January 31st, 1942. So just, you know, a month after he's released from confinement from his punishment for going AWOL, he gets married in Boise with a Catholic ceremony. And they were living in an apartment on 11th and Bannock downtown, where the Boise Plaza now stands. And they had two children together named Dennis and Diane, and Ralph described his wife and marriage as ideal. Five months later, a journalist at the Idaho Statesman actually snapped a photo of Ralph standing in front of a series of World War II posters that say, This man is your friend. They depicted smiling soldiers from Canada, Russia, England, China, the Netherlands, Ethiopia, Australia, all of the allies uh, during World War II. And it was just smiling soldiers. And the photos captioned, quote, like the gun in the posters. This man is your friend posters distributed by the Office of Facts and Figures in Washington have a counterpart in Corporal Ralph Golden, Philadelphian at Gowan Field. The posters show an Englishman, Chinese, and Russian. Golden is an American son of an English father, and that friendly smile is for his buddies of the United Nations. End quote. It's this great little photo of, of him standing in front of all this in his army regalia. He was honorably discharged as a sergeant after four years on July 8, 1944, at Bushnell General Hospital in Brigham City, Utah. He was having these really intense, severe migraines that actually followed him throughout his life, and so he had to leave the service. Ugh, migraines are the worst. Like, I feel like of all the, like, health issues that I hear about, like, when you know what they feel like, you're just like, that is terrible, and ugh, migraines are no joke. I've been fortunate in my life to 
you know, never have to suffer that. So, yeah, I was, I was asking my mom, like, what does your headache feel like? And she like told me and I was like, I don't even know. I don't even understand that concept because I've never had a headache that isn't a migraine. Ah. So anyway, that's a just a side thing. Poor guy. Migraines. Terrible. It would be really hard to focus for mm-hmm. sure with mm-hmm. that, with that going on. So Ralph, he leaves the military police, and he continues his path, getting a position with the Boise Police Department as a patrolman after his service in the military. And he works with BPD for about 17 months. And as we've seen repeatedly with the stories of prison guards and administrators, moving from military to police or corrections is and continues to be a pretty common move. In an article in the Idaho Statesman from June 7, 1945, listed Ralph along with four other recent recruits to the department as World War II veterans. And Ralph was paired with a World War I vet named Jack McRoberts, so an older police officer who had been on the force for a short time, but he had transferred from the Oregon State Police. And in November 1945, Ralph and McRoberts were summoned to the Boise High Gymnasium around 10.30 p.m. where the annual co-ed dance, which was actually exclusively for girls, was going on. And when they arrived, boys were actually attempting to crash the dance. And when the group of boys saw the police, they started shouting at them, calling them names. And Ralph and McRoberts actually told them to scatter. He said, leave the grounds, everybody. But one of the boys actually approached Jack McRoberts And according to Jack, quote, made preparations to fight, so I slapped him down, end quote. So he hits this high schooler with a sap, beats him to the ground, and then cuffs him. And all the other boys see this, and they scatter. They run off. And this young man, he's released that night. He's never booked in a jail or anything after that. But all these high schoolers actually gather, and 75 to 150 students actually march on City Hall all night long where the police station was. It was right there near City Hall in downtown Boise. And they were protesting this arrest. Nothing really came of this as the Boise police and school authorities dropped any investigation stating that, quote, it was a regrettable incident. There's this great quote from the article about this dance and things that happened. So they said, quote, Every year, the co-ed ball has been marked by similar attempts on the part of the boys to crash the gate. And in some instances, the boys have even gone to the extreme of dressing as girls in order to gain admittance. About four years ago, the boys got in, and in a tussle that followed, one boy lost a finger when a window was slammed on his hand, end quote. I don't know how this just kept continuing if they had issues like that, but if any listeners ever remember any of these co-ed dances from the 40s or the 50s, like, I'd love to hear more about them. (laughs) During the spring of 1946, Ralph actually took a six-week course of instruction with the FBI at the Ada County Prosecuting Attorney's Office and received his diploma in the Owyhee Hotel in June, along with 30 other members of the Boise Police Department. He had been working on the police force for about a year and a half and received a permanent appointment after passing a civil service examination on July 15, 1946. For an undisclosed reason, though, he retired from the Boise Police Department by the end of that month. A detective magazine called Master Detective had this September 1947 story by Gustav Pearson that implied that Ralph quit by request because the captain said Ralph chased women and caused trouble. And so the captain actually requested that Ralph quit. I couldn't verify any of this, but there's 
no mention of him leaving and it seems rather strange that you know he would up and leave right after getting this like permanent position and after taking all of this training so this is like a pulp magazine but it's about a true story yeah so this is this is one of those like true crime magazines from the 40s okay there, there were so many of those it's not like and a they, you know one, they no. just sensationalize it's not okay. yeah it's not fiction i mean it's it's very like sensationalized storytelling okay so and and you know i, I don't know if i can verify all of the sources that gustav sure implies that he interviewed in a lot of it so that's why i was like "Uh, i you know but that was the only place that i could find anything and he said he interviewed the captain and that's what the captain told him so yeah great question though i looked through these newspapers for any mentions of ralph's removal and only found that a week after he was listed as an officer who had quote received permanent appointments after successfully passing the civil service exam the police department was actually attempting to fill seven positions, which was an uptick from the five that they needed just like a month prior. So this tall, handsome, husky policeman was looking for a new job, and he got one as a cab driver for the black and white cab company here in Boise. He began that on August 1st, 1946, and he would hold on to this job until suddenly quitting nearly two months later on September 30th, 1946. So, let's jump to that date. On September 30th, 1946, a man in the neighborhood on the Boise bench at the corner of Pershing and Latos Street actually noticed his neighbor's door was ajar, and the lights were on in the house as he left for work in the morning. When he returned home later in the evening, he actually noticed that the door was still open and the lights were still on, which was odd. It was the middle of summer, And he knew that a middle-aged couple named Eugene and Mildred Ruscio lived in the home. And the neighbors knew that the husband was regularly away on business as a salesman for a Salt Lake City company, a paper company. So this neighbor, he decides, you know, I'm going to go investigate. And as he approaches and peered inside the house, he saw the blood-covered body of his neighbor, Mildred Ruscio, laying face down on the floor wearing only a bathrobe. He immediately called the police around 8.30 p.m. that night. So this is September 30th, 1946. Mildred was 50 years old. She was described as very attractive, lively, engaging, and she looked much younger than her age, about 15 years younger, so like her mid-30s. And a lot of the newspaper articles, actually, the age fluctuated from 35 to 49, every age between there that I saw. And it appeared that she had been bludgeoned from behind. As authorities found two broken whiskey bottles on the ground near her body. And the neck of the bottle was still intact, like it had been used as a handle to club her. The house appeared to have been ransacked, but her husband was nowhere to be found. So authorities actually tracked him down. He was on his way back to Boise from a business trip to Pocatello. He was clearly heartbroken and couldn't think of any reason why anyone would do this to her. He saw that the house, which was usually very clean, appeared to have been ransacked, but nothing was missing. They didn't really have a lot of money and, you know, no money stashed away anywhere. Valuables were still in their place, and it didn't seem that robbery was the motive. The house was just turned over. Authorities questioned the neighbors, and one woman actually noted that she saw two men go into the Rousseau house with Mildred that night. And she heard music, and it sounded like they were having a good time together and that they were company that she knew. When the autopsy came back from Coroner McBratney, it, quote, disclosed 
that she had been shot to death instead of clubbed with an empty whiskey bottle, as was believed earlier, end quote. The wow. killer had attempted to hide the gunshot by breaking the bottle over her head after shooting her. So officers scoured the home, and they couldn't find the gun. They couldn't find the shell casing. They did pull the bullet from her brain. Well, this is wild. This is yes. not going where yeah. I thought it was going to go. I'm not going to lie. This has kind of kept me awake the last couple of nights as I've worked on it. And I <laughs> have been like, oh, do I want to tell this story? This is a horrible story. So uh, the coroner noted that it appeared to be a, a 25 caliber bullet that had been discharged into the back of her head from just a couple of feet away. She didn't have any bruises and she wasn't sexually assaulted either. So authorities, mm. I mean... Throughout the entire case, they were at a loss for any sort of motive. They understood that Mildred didn't like to sit at home alone while her husband was on business and often went to the movies or went downtown to clubs with friends. They contacted the local taxi cab company and recognized a name of a driver from the black and white cab company who had dropped a man off at her house the previous night was of course ralph golden so he came in for questioning and after saying he dropped her off he was allowed to leave you know they didn't tell him he had to stick around for additional questioning he just said yeah i dropped off a a man at her house and i picked him up about three hours later and that was it so on october 1st 1946 ralph decides you know i'm gonna find a better paying job he told his wife he was heading out quote for a pack of smokes he left boise October 1st, 1946, leaving his job with the black and white cab company due to its low pay. And he wrote a letter to his wife saying he was heading back east to be with his family. But he also wrote a letter to the Pacific Finance Company where he held a loan and explained that he was going to California. He hitchhiked from Boise to Nampa. And after four days of investigation, Sheriff Don Hedrick issued a warrant for Ralph's arrest. He was wanted for the murder of Mildred Ruscio. When it hit the newspapers, journalists noted, quote, Hedrick did not disclose what he believed to be the motive in the killing, nor did he reveal any information of the investigation that led to the naming of Golden for the first-degree murder charge, end quote. His description was broadcast to every radio station in the area, but it appears that not everyone got the message because while he was wanted, Ralph was actually in Nampa where he got a haircut, he saw a movie at the Pix Theater, He met up with a police officer from Nampa who introduced Ralph to a new city detective. He caught a bus from there to Winnemucca, Nevada, and then from Winnemucca, he hitchhiked to San Francisco, California. Authorities had this wide net cast to capture Ralph, who appeared to just vanish. 348 circulars were sent across the United States for his capture, including California and in Pennsylvania where his family was. The prosecuting attorney called for more funds to actually pay for further investigations into the evidence, including laboratory fees and expert ballistic analysis for the crime scene. Ralph bounced around San Francisco. He checked into hotels in his own name, and he applied for several jobs. He checked into the Grand Southern Hotel and listed his address as New York. And then three days later, he checked in and listed Philadelphia as his home, his hometown. I just always think about how easy it is to just, at this time, just disappear. Like, you just pretend to be someone else. You say you're from somewhere else. Like, it's kind of cool, but also kind of scary. 
But I, I, I don't know. I, I just find that so interesting that like, and that's, I mean, so often that's sort of the issue that we have with our inmates and tracing them is that, you know, they're clearly somewhere in these years that we can't find them, but are they using mm-hmm. a completely different name? Like it just, it's so interesting that you could literally just start over somewhere else. And if you kept everything hidden well enough, like no one would ever find you. Well, that's the strange thing though. He, he said his hometown was different, but he still said, Use yeah, my name. name is Ralph Golden. Yeah, that's dumb. I mean, and he's, he's a, a former military policeman, former police officer, and he's gone through FBI training. Like he knows if he needed to disappear that he wouldn't keep his own name. So that's, that's throughout this whole entire case. Right. Keep that in mind huh. that like, is he hiding something or is he purposefully trying to make it seem like he's not trying to hide something? Oh, that doesn't make any sense though. But I mean, but he, I feel like he is in that he's like, he's telling two people two different things. Like he tells his wife he's going to go to Philadelphia and then he goes to California and he's like using all, you know, using his same name. So there's something weird going on. This is so interesting, Anthony. It is. It's, oh. I feel like usually I can be, yeah, usually I can be like, oh, I see where this is going. And I genuinely have no idea what's going on right now. (laughs) Right. And I'm not sure if we're going to end with either of us really knowing for sure what actually went on. That's the thing about this whole case. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a doozy for sure. Great. I love it. At one point while in San Francisco, he actually stopped into a post office to check for mail because he was hoping to get a letter back from, I think, the finance company, maybe from his wife. When he gave his name, the teller actually recognized it from a list sent by police. And so the teller asked him to stand by because someone wanted to speak to him. And Ralph, he got that message loud and clear. He actually left the office immediately and didn't return for any more mail. But, you know, it alerted authorities, okay, he is in San Francisco. And so on October 16th, it's noted that Ralph, he actually applied for a job at the Brown Pacific Maxim Company in Guam and listed his home address in Pennsylvania and his wife address at the Belgravia in Boise, in apartment 10, downtown Boise, which is where the family had moved. This is that historic building on the southeast corner of 5th and Main in downtown Boise. He's given a form that required his fingerprints, and it seemed he ended this application after that. He got a job at this place called the Snow White Cafe there in San Francisco. So he gets in contact with Eldine, and she ended up actually buying a bus ticket and headed to San Francisco. Unfortunately, she was just a little too late because Ralph was working the dinner shift at the cafe when police arrived. Quote, he was arrested in a downtown cafe during the dinner hour in quiet, routine fashion. He told arresting officers that his wife was coming to San Francisco. They accompanied him to the bus terminal to meet her, end quote. So they actually allowed him to go to the bus stop and actually pick her up. They were both arrested, taken into custody on October 17, 1946. Eldine, she was actually released by officers almost immediately. Ralph, he was held and he was questioned. He denied any knowledge of Mildred's murder, and he told him Boise police had released him after questioning. And this is what the arresting officer actually stated on the stand during Ralph's trial. Here's the attorney. Now, what did you do when the defendant had been arrested? And here is the San Francisco policeman. When we arrested him, he immediately said to us, what is this all about? And I said, well, of course, your name is Ralph Golden. 
don't you know of anything? Is that you? And he says, yes, but what's it all about? I said, suppose you tell us, what do you think it's all about? And he thought a moment and he says, well, I ran out on my wife. Possibly she has gotten a warrant out against me. He also said a lot more, which we will get to in just a moment. So Ralph waived extradition. He said he would return to Boise willingly, but Sheriff Hedrick and Boise, he wanted to be sure Ralph was brought back. And so he waited for the governor to sign extradition papers. And Ralph was brought back. He arrived in Boise to face charges on October 27th, 1946. So he was arraigned on the charge of murder in the first degree on October 28th, where he remained silent except to tell the judge that he had no counsel, but his family was looking for it, and he desired an attorney before a preliminary hearing. He was guarded closely by three officers, and Sheriff Hedrick noted that uh, he didn't want to take any chances with Ralph Golden. Strangely, though, he was actually seen joking and talking to Ralph before the judge entered the courtroom. At the preliminary hearing on November 9th, the prosecuting attorney revealed basics of the evidence that the police had collected tying Ralph to the murder. Dr. Joseph Beeman, the pathologist, testified that, quote, a 25 caliber bullet and a fragment of the bullet was removed by him from the brain of Mrs. Rousseau. He also declared from the stand that he examined a 25 caliber bullet given him by the Boise Police Department. Both bullets were fired from the same gun, the expert asserted. End quote. Sheriff Hedrick stated that fingerprints were found on the neck of the broken whiskey bottle. When Ralph got the job with the cab company, he was required to get his fingerprints taken. Those prints actually matched those from the whiskey bottle. Ralph pled not guilty on December 2nd, and the prosecuting attorney filed information for the case, including a list of 98 potential witnesses he could call for the state, including a long list of Ralph's former co-workers in the Boise Police Department. My research for Ralph is about 150 pages of newspaper clippings, and most of which sway towards Ralph's guilt in the case, based on his apparent flight from Idaho immediately after the murder. In one of the only cases I've come across, Bob Schultz of the Idaho Statesman actually interviewed Ralph's wife, Eldine, who was, quote, fighting to control her emotion-filled heart in a low voice that threatened at times to break into sobs, end quote, as she told Ralph's side of the story for the newspaper. She started the interview saying, quote, everything so far in the, in the paper seems to be against Ralph, end quote. And the whole article, it's very heartfelt. She told Bob that she prayed that Ralph would be home for Christmas because their children adored him. And when asked why he ran, she said that he wasn't running from anything. He just wanted a better life for the family. And he had been talking about getting a job, enlisting back into the army or, quote, to go overseas on some construction job. Ralph signed a year's contract with the company sending men to Guam. He provided a photograph and fingerprints for the passport and was awaiting his birth certificate to arrive when arrested, end quote. She continued saying, quote, My husband wrote me two letters from San Francisco. As you know, he was a Boise policeman for a year, and if he had been running away or hiding from anyone, he certainly would know better than to write to his family, end quote. While talking about what happened the morning after the murder, she said that Ralph got home from his night shift job like usual at 7 a.m. And she came in, told him she would make him some breakfast. And he said not to worry about it, that he'd fix something up for himself because he wanted to go to the recruiting station, telling Eldine, quote, there's no future in taxi driving for me. And with my army rating, I can get somewhere, 
end quote. So, you know, he had this drive that day, like, you know, I got to get a new job. That That is what her focus was. Ralph's parents visited him in jail a day before his trial, and his father told journalists that his son was, quote, a victim of circumstances. I am sure my son knows nothing about the crime. He has never been that type of boy, end quote. So Ralph Golden's trial began on December 16, 1946, and the courtroom was packed all four days of the trial. The majority of the first day was spent on jury selection of 10 men and two women and piling up the state's 19 exhibits against Ralph, including the whiskey bottles and photographs of the fingerprints left on them. The second day, the jury heard testimony from Crescent Henderson, FBI fingerprint expert, and Lieutenant James Brendan, Boise detective, who both positively identified the match between the finger and palm prints on the bottle and Ralph Golden. The most shocking testimony came from Private Irwin Crabtree, who was friends with Ralph and worked as a mechanic at the Hotel Boise Garage. He testified that Ralph handed him a 25 caliber pistol around 1 a.m. the evening of the murder and appeared, quote, nervous and jittery, end quote. Irwin returned the gun the following evening. Strangely, like Ralph, Irwin actually skipped town soon after and enlisted in the Army at Illinois, like within the week. Co-workers at the Black and White Cab Company testified that they had witnessed Ralph fire a round into a telephone pole in the cab company's parking lot a few weeks prior. Dr. Beeman, the pathologist, testified based on two bullets, one taken from Mildred and the other extracted from the telephone pole, stating that both were fired by the same weapon. Ralph took the stand. He admitted that he was only 24 years old, uh, he had been reported as 27 in all of this, and that he had lied about his age to join the Army. He denied Irwin's testimony, explaining to the court that he was on his way to San Francisco at the point and couldn't nor wouldn't have given either of his two pistols that he owned to anybody. The defense also called Patrolman Edward Brashear, who took the stand, but stated, quote, he could not remember if he saw Ralph that evening or not, and Ralph's attorney stated that was, quote, not the story you told me at the police station, end quote. Brashear would not speak more on the case besides saying that he thought Ralph's reputation was good. So, you know, the defense was like, you know, here's a detective that met with Ralph that night, but this detective, I don't know if he got scared or, or what happened, but he refused to testify on Ralph's behalf. A painter named Carl Reed testified that Ralph had actually dropped him off and picked him up from Mildred's home on a three-hour-long business conference the evening of the murder. So while with Mildred, he ended up drinking two beers and she had whiskey. And he noted that before going over, he and Ralph had actually stopped for a beer at a Boise bar. And after Ralph picked him up from Mildred's, they stopped off and had another beer. So they asked Ralph to bring two packs of cigarettes with him when he came back to pick Carl up. So kind of a, like, okay, who is this painter? Well, the painter said that Mildred had asked him, you know, you need to come over. And then when he got over there, they ended up just kind of drinking and talking about a paint job that she wanted. And they just kind of hung out and drank together. So the week of the crime... Ralph's mother-in-law, a widow, had actually testified that she had gone out to a party with Carl Reed a week before the trial, quote, because she wanted to meet him, end quote. So Ralph's mother-in-law, Eldine's mother, a week before the trial, had gone to a party with Carl, this painter, 
and she stated that she didn't know he was connected to the murder case, and when it came up in conversation, she didn't tell Reed her connection to Ralph. And Reed said Mildred attempted to borrow money from him and stated that, quote, Golden was a bold cab driver and came into the house when coming to pick him up at the Ruscio home. I was the last one to see her alive, end quote. So it's like all this confusing testimony. An army recruiter was brought to the stand and noted that Ralph had attempted to re-enlist the morning after the murder, just one of the many attempts that he had made over the weeks prior. And Ralph took the stand on the third day of the trial and admitted that he had entered the house and drank whiskey with Mildred and Carl that evening when he returned with the packs of cigarettes and to pick Carl up. He couldn't recall how much he had drank or who poured the drinks. There were some sharp replies back and forth between Ralph, who was described as red in the face during cross-examination from the prosecuting attorney, particularly in reference to statements he made to officers in San Francisco. Ralph was not told that anything that he said would be used against him after his arrest there, and when the officers asked if he had been in the house or anything like that with Mildred, he said no, and, quote, if your fingerprints were found in the Rousseau house, you could not account for them, end quote. And he said, yes, he couldn't account for his fingerprints being found there. The arresting officers from San Francisco took the stand, and they reiterated just that. A final blow to Ralph's defense. So on the fourth and final day of the trial, December 20th, both sides made their final arguments to the jury. The jury was sent out and deliberated for seven hours, and when they returned to the court and the clerk read their decision, Ralph Golden was found guilty of murder in the first degree. The courtroom, quote, erupted into a mad turmoil. The additional decision of life imprisonment punishment was lost amid screams of Golden's wife and his mother, both of whom went into wild hysterics and shouts of no from parts of the courtroom. Golden remained calm, although his jaw clenched and his cheek muscles worked vigorously, end quote. The judge actually ushered everyone out of the courtroom, and while the jury read their decision, outbursts could be heard in the, in the hallway again. The judge stated, quote, I wish to thank you for your cooperative attitude during this trial, but if juries did not have courage and stamina and good citizenship to do their duty, there would be no law. At these words, Golden's wife suddenly jumped to her feet and stamped her feet, crying, no, they can't do it, and sobbed bitterly, end quote. One of the jurors said, quote, There would be few murder convictions without relying on circumstantial evidence. Murderers do not invite witnesses to a killing. End quote. Ralph was handed a sentence on December 23, 1946, by Judge Kolsch, who pronounced that Ralph be sentenced to imprisonment for the rest and remainder of your natural life. End quote. I still don't get it. Like, what is the motivation? Right. I don't, there's, I mean, and like... It was unclear during the whole trial. Right, like that usually is like kind of number one in trying to figure out if it was first degree, if it was, they're just, if there's no, I'm not seeing any connection, I'm not seeing any reason for him doing, I'm just very confused. There's definitely a, an appeal coming here. Sure, yeah, yeah. Ralph, he accepted the sentence no, you know, real visible display of emotion. They had extra police in there because they knew of his training and everything else. So within an hour, he actually entered the Idaho State Penitentiary. So here's his entrance, Bertillion information. Ralph Golden, number 77, crime, murder in the first degree, sentence, life, sentence and received December 23rd, 1946, 
County Ada, plea not guilty, age 24, marital status married, education 10th grade, religion Catholic, hazel eyes, curly dark brown hair, 70 and a half inches tall or 5 feet 10 and a half inches tall, uh, 170 pounds, medium complexion, husky build, and good health. He had scars on his face along with moles all over, uh, many that covered his back. He had a vaccination mark, a scar on his hand, and Warden Luke Clapp noted that he also had hairy legs, which is something I have never come across. They must have been, like, exceptionally hairy if he's going to note that. Ugh. That's, that's what I thought, too. Um, he had the names of his wife and two daughters tattooed on his right forearm, Eldine, Diane, and Dennis. So the time at the Idaho State Penitentiary... Eldine actually promised that she would wait for Ralph, no matter how long it took. She was involved in a car crash in early January, not long after this, and she just suffered some minor cuts and bruises. This is a poor winter stormy day. Ralph was locked at hard boil for a month on January 18th, 1947, when he was caught loafing in the barber shop. He told authorities, quote, he was only asking one of the barbers about something to relieve a scalp condition he had from the water here, to which he wasn't accustomed at the time, and he didn't think he was loafing, end quote. He ended up, upon his release from Hard Boil, getting a job in the inmate laundry from June 15, 1947 to October 28, 1947. And from there, he transferred to the license plate factory, where he worked from October 28, 47 until June 24, 1948. And while working in the license plate factory, Ralph's attorney was appealing the case to the Idaho Supreme Court. Ralph hired the former assistant attorney general of Idaho, Phil J. Evans, who was convinced that the circumstantial evidence in the trial wasn't efficient to support guilt. Quote, the record discloses fatal gaps in the evidence. Circumstantial evidence alone is relied upon to show the guilt of the defendant. End quote. He also noted the court's refusal to introduce three letters written by Ralph after he left Boise. He said that was prejudicial error and Ralph wrote to the bank just before he left to California, stating that he would straighten out the loan as soon as he got settled there, as I mentioned. After his arrest, a deputy went to the bank to collect the letter, which was given to the Ada County Sheriff and used as a state exhibit, but there was, one, nobody witnessed Ralph writing the letter, two, there was no analysis of the handwriting that it matched Ralph's, and three, Ralph never identified it as his own letter. And so it, it was actually rejected. Evans stated that the court implied that the murder was done in an attempt to commit a robbery in the instructions given to the jury. He also said the evidence failed to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And then on account of the alleged gun, Evans stated that the two men had handled it that evening of the death and that Ralph Golden and his friend Crabtree could both be seen as suspects as the murder happened at an imprecise time in the middle of the night, and Crabtree held onto the gun until the following evening, and he also fled Boise soon after. On November 10, 1947, the Idaho Supreme Court actually upheld the conviction 4-1 to one and denied Ralph a new trial. Quote, there was sufficient substantial evidence to show motive and opportunity for the defendant to commit the crime. The verdict is not contrary to law. No reversible error appealing in the record. The judgment is affirmed. End quote. And Ralph would actually, he would never admit to the crime, and he insisted his entire life that he was innocent of it. He was tossed 
back into hard boil for just over three months from June 24th to October 1st, 1948 for, quote, writing a kite about benzedrine. Benzedrine was this stimulant. It was basically amphetamines. And at this time in the late 40s, it was a it was a huge issue because you could just get it over the counter, no problem. And it, it was an inhaler for uh, a stuffy nose. They would take this cotton swab out and they would either chew on it and get like an amphetamine rush or they could actually boil it off and, and inject this amphetamine. And prisoners here were getting it in the box full. And I think that Ralph was one of those fellas who was dealing in Benzedrine tablets. Uh, huge problem. And Lou Clapp actually pled with the local media to like, hey, stop sending this into the prison. This is a huge issue. Our guys are high on this on this stimulant, and it is not good. And it's turning into a, a huge issue. And so Ralph Golden happened to be one of the individuals who's spreading this around the, the prison yard. Ralph said that there's no evidence against him that he was selling any of this, and he was probably locked up to be controlled because it was thought that he would, quote, blow his top when he received divorce papers from L. Dean. He did finally admit that he was dealing Benzedrine at the time, but he was just doing that to get some spending money. I was going to ask, and this is perhaps a really skeptical and, like, bad way to look at it, but do you think that because he'd had this background in, like, police work, he, like, knew how to, like hide evidence do you know what i mean it, like that's yeah. part of why sort of everything in the house may have been circumstantial if he was actually involved do you know what i mean like that's like really um skeptical about police but i just i'm wondering if there's something to that idea that like he knows what they'd be looking for he knows where they would look and so he like knows yeah. where to hide things and how to make things how to cover it up and yeah. create reasonable doubt right. absolutely yeah and that is part of the prosecuting attorney is like he's well versed in knowing how to cover a crime scene like obviously he made it seem or whoever it was made it seem like this was an attack with a whiskey bottle and if we had not had the coroner investigate it could have been up like that and he would actually try to use that so he actually willingly applied for a polygraph test (laughs) like i don't like that defense like i would have known how to do it like not a good defense my friend and you didn't do it well if if you did like right it's it's such a crazy case i don't know i'm in the camp that he was guilty and he did try to cover it up my thoughts is that maybe he was intoxicated and Mm. he doesn't you know, truly know all of the events of that evening. Because mm-hmm. if he did have some drinks with Carl on the way to Mildred's house and then, you know, do some more pickups, drop-offs, and then go over, drink some more with Mildred and Carl, and then take Carl to another bar and then have more drinks with him. Like, he could have been very intoxicated. He mm-hmm. could have been not thinking correctly and maybe went over to Mildred's hoping for something else i don't know i i think he might be guilty too but i'm still like the motive is so like that's what's getting me like that's the hang up for me is like why it didn't seem like he knew her even if he was intoxicated and he like made her mad like to be fair he wasn't the one who did like got rid of the gun he wasn't the one who like uh, oh you know like i don't know i'm so i think he did it but i'm skeptical of it you know what i mean yeah 
totally. That's that's what I've been left with as well. I mean, he was so convinced of his innocence that he, you know, agreed to two polygraph tests in August of 1951, but he failed them. The examiner noted that Ralph failed all of the questions, writing, quote, It is the opinion of the examiner that Ralph Golden is guilty of shooting Mildred Ruscio, end quote. And I looked at the questions and all of them, it's like, Golden's answer, no. And to like, were you there? Did you do any of this? The polygraph's answer was yes on all of them. So maybe he was just nervous in an elevated state. Maybe he just naturally is that way. You know, they're never perfect. Yeah, polygraphs are not great. I've always heard that if they're you're for whatever reason, science. yeah, like you're, you're, they're not allowed in court as evidence. But like the other thing that I'm, I wonder might be a possibility too is if this other guy did the shooting, but they kind of panicked. And so he, and like, so then he used the bottle to like hit over the head to be like oh then it'll cover it up because i feel like in the 40s that's hard to like lift and plant finger and palm prints like like the technology just isn't quite the same and so i wonder if he's involved but maybe didn't actually do the killing and then try to like cover for his buddy i don't know i think it was a, a pretty established like fingerprinting was pretty established by this point right and and they did talk about, you know, they dusted everything right. and they found, you know, his fingerprints on several places. Right. And when he first said that he didn't even enter the house, you know, that kind of like, okay, now you're admitting that you actually did go into the house. Why are you hiding this? It's really difficult. And, and really, honestly, only Mildred would be the only person who would, you know, know. You know, he's divorced now. He he told authorities that, you know, he still loved his kids but he would never return to Eldine if he was released because he couldn't respect her anymore. But he still wanted to have a relationship with his children. Sorry, what? Couldn't respect her anymore? What did she do? She stood by his bad attitude. She stood by him the whole time. And, well, I'm mad about that. <laughs> I, I know. When I read that, I was like, oh, my gosh. You're the one who said, oh, I'm going to go out for a pack of smokes and then ended up in San Francisco. That is not okay. Couldn't respect her. I can't I can't respect you, sir. <laughs> he kind of bounces around the prison. He's, he gets a job as a janitor in one of the cell houses from October 2nd, 1948 to April 20th, 1949. And from there, he's actually promoted to the captain's office as a clerk, where he worked until February 17th, 1953. So it's at some point while working as a cell house janitor or in the captain's office as a clerk that I think that he left his initials in that wet cement in front of number three house. There's a lot of talk about the different training that was going on. And in the 1949-1950 Warden's Biennial Report, Warden Clapp wrote, quote, The lack of education and training in some trades or professions is the cause of many of these men becoming criminals. They were unable to compete with the average worker because they lacked education and experience. As we look over the records, we find that in many cases where this is a fact, the man becomes a wanderer, a petty thief, or just a plain bum. He would never hold a job over a month. In most of the cases, they were discharged because they were not capable of holding a job with the least amount of responsibility attached to it. Prison maintenance departments train men in the following job classifications— Carpenters, plumbers, cement finishers, plasterers, electricians, radio repairmen, barbers, hospital attendants, tailors and pressers, typists, etc. You see, a prison is a city behind walls, end quote. 
So he's talking about particularly that cement finishing job in 1949, 1950. They're replacing a lot of that in here. And so he's working as a janitor, maybe in three house. And he swipes his name and initials right there in cursive. Uh, We actually have an oral history from Mark Maxwell taken on October 2nd, 1981. And this kind of helps explain what Ralph was like while incarcerated. One of the worst things was the control that certain inmates had over the uh, inmates in the yard. We had a guy here by the name of Ralph Golden, uh, was a policeman on the Boise Police Department for years. Then he was driving a taxi cab and he got mixed up with uh, some gambling and things. And he came here uh, for killing a woman, which he claims he never did kill. He got a second degree sentence for 20 years. But Ralph Golden was a, a big guy and a tough guy. And when I came here, Ralph Golden was running this penitentiary in the yard. Anybody that wanted a job, or wanted to get out on the bull gang, or wanted to go to the farm, they were paying Ralph Golden to get on there. He was the captain's right-hand man, and the captain couldn't see this. But he'd go to the captain and say, well, this guy, and he was right. This guy's a pretty good guy, and he'd, he'd do good down at the milk barn, you know. But Ralph was getting $5 or $10, or he was getting something out of this, you know. The guy was paying off some way. I think Ralph Golden, we had to, and finally Pat decided this, and, and we got Ralph Golden out of there. I think we put him down in the shoe shop, so he was isolated down in the shoe shop, repairing shoes and doing that kind of stuff. Paul Mahaffey at one time was running this institution, I think. Ralph Golden is kind of running the prison, and anyone wants to be transferred to a different unit or anything like that, they'd have to go through Ralph and pay him to get it. So, you know, during all of this, Ralph is applying for pardon in the fall of 1950, but he's denied. He applies again in the fall of 1951. He's passed on twice until April of 1952, where he's denied again. He applies again a year later in April 1953, denied again. And during that appeal, he was actually in lockup from February 17th to June 18th after he took his radio apart and altered it so that he could have access to more radio stations than the earphone system would allow. So he got busted tinkering with the prison radios. When he was released, he was actually given a job as a tool checker in a cell house until November 3rd, 1953. And then he went into the construction work, which was going on for number four and number five house for several months until April 7th, 1954. And then from April 7th until May 19th, 1955, he worked as a librarian and mail clerk in the prison library. Again, in April 1954, he applied for parole but was rejected. The newspaper noting, quote, The State Board of Corrections Monday released one convicted slayer. His name was Frank Gavlosky, who had served more than six years on a 15-year sentence, but denied clemency to another. And so year after year, Ralph is rejected by the parole board. He was promoted to an outside trustee from here in the prison bull gang from May 19, 1955 to August 28, 1955, and then he was sent to Eagle Island where he milked cows from August 28, 1955 to March 24, 1956. This got to him as he was discharged from his duty for, quote, agitating and complaining about being overworked at the dairy, long hours, etc., end quote. 
He felt justified in this complaint because he said he was working from 2.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. every single day while the others got to work normal hours and even got to watch TV while they worked. He was removed from the Eagle Island and returned to the prison yard where he was listed as idle from March 24, 1956 to June 7, 1956. He was finally returned to work on June 7, 1956 as the janitor in another cell house, and he had finally reached the 10-year mark mandatory for parole under the statute covering life sentences. So you have to do a minimum of 10 years on these life sentences before you can apply, and he finally had a chance. He told the parole board that he was offered a job as a driver for the Bloodmobile units for the American Red Cross in Boise, and he planned to live at the YMCA until he could make money and find an apartment. After his parole, he wanted to return to Philadelphia, and his parents actually came to Boise from Philadelphia, and the former prison chaplain, Harry T. Strong, actually invited them to stay at his house. And Harry Strong actually offered to have Ralph at his house upon release. But Ralph was like, no, you know, sir, I really appreciate that, but I don't want to burden you. So he is granted a parole on December 23rd, 1956, 10 years after his arrival at the prison. He left the prison with 10 purses, seven wallets, one secretary, and two belts, all made from the leather in the prison hobby shop. And he was discharged from the parole a year later on December 26, 1957. The report noted that he was living at the YMCA where, quote, they consider him a good occupant and does not cause any undue disturbances or noises, end quote. So due to his job with the Red Cross, Ralph actually appeared regularly because he donated a lot. He received his three-gallon pin in April of 1958. He moved to Nampa, Idaho, and on March 22, 1958, he married Catherine Smith in Winnemucca, Nevada. She was actually born and raised in Denver, Colorado, and is listed in the 1958 city directory as a waitress at Hotel Boise. So that's probably where they met. And it seemed that Ralph's life was starting to turn around. He had found a stable job and marriage, but a year into their marriage, Catherine was hospitalized for a heart disease. She spent nearly a year in the hospital before succumbing to the disease. She died on February 4th, 1960, and was buried at the Cloverdale Memorial Park. According to her obituary, she was a member of the Church of the Open Door, which was a non-denominational evangelical church. And survivors included a son from a previous marriage and a daughter that she had with Ralph in June of 1959. So Ralph now has, you know, three daughters. So he actually remarried again, this woman named Fern Clausen, who is from Eric, Oklahoma, in Nampa on June 10th, 1965. Former prison chaplain Orville Stiles actually served as the minister at the wedding and signed his name on the marriage license. I believe that the couple had a son together soon after their marriage because I found this story that I believe is connected to Ralph from September 10th, 1969. And this is so sad. It's so difficult. So if you skip ahead like a minute, I totally understand. But on September 10th, 1969, three and a half year old Gregory Golden, which would make sense that's three years after his marriage here. And four-and-a-half-year-old Mark Kinghorn went missing in Idaho Falls. Idaho Falls police were called to investigate and couldn't find the little boys. Half an hour later, Miss Kinghorn checked the refrigerator <gasps> in the family's garage. No. Where she found them. No. 
They had been trapped and locked in there. And it was too late. They were pronounced dead on arrival at the LDS hospital. Ugh. I, ugh. This what? is so devastating. What? Ugh. Beyond this, you know, and I, I couldn't find oh any more information gosh. about these, about Gregory. If this was, in fact, Ralph's son, it, it just the timing all seemed to match. And, I mean, this is in different part of Idaho. I didn't see that he had moved or any other information about him, but... The next thing I could find about Ralph Golden was that he died June 10th, 1987 at the age of 65 in San Mateo, California. I couldn't find any obituaries or any other information concerning his death or his burial. I did find that Fern had passed away in 1996 and her marker actually lists her maiden name. Mm. So I don't know if she and Ralph Mm. got a divorce Mm -hmm. or if she returned to her maiden name after his death. But... That is the life of, you know, a military policeman turned Boise policeman turned taxi cab driver turned potential murderer and convict at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Fascinating story, all because I found a couple initials in front of three house. I mean, great work. Absolutely fascinating. I, I find it so interesting that... You know, he was in the military and he's in the police. Those are two very, like, discipline-heavy, like, you have to be self-disciplined and you have to be, like, straight-laced. And then he comes into the prison and it's not just, like, I'm just going to, I'm here because I have to be, I'm going to serve my time and just, like, live a quiet existence. Like Maxwell said, he was, like, leading the yard. That's a very different shift in, like, personality and attitude. I wonder if something happened. Huh. I've wondered about those migraines, you know, Ooh. and... I wonder if there was a head injury or something. Hmm. Could very well be, but, you know, we don't access right. medical information. That's right. that's all covered, so it's one of those things. Well, never really know, and... In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. All right, Sky. Well, what do you have for us today? All right. I have quite the notorious criminal today, actually. So I am talking about number 9202 and number 9718, Edna May Hester. Sources, her inmate file, Ancestry.com, Newspapers.com was an invaluable resource in this particular uh, episode. Um, An article called Best of Idaho Matters in 2020, Why Idaho's Racist History Matters by Frankie Barnhill from Boise State Public Radio. An article called Idaho Ebony, the African-American Presence in Idaho State History by Mamie O. Oliver, published in the Journal of African-American History, Winter 2006. The Washington State University Digital Collections, and then just tidbits from Wikipedia. 
So we don't know much about Edna's early life. Ancestry records about her are particularly sparse. I could only find two marriage records for her and her father's death record. Could not find anything else relating to her or her life or her family. Any information we have of her early life is actually from her father, who filled out a survey from authorities, but there's even very little information on that survey. Most of the answers he just writes, don't know. So she says that she was born Edna May Tolliver on December 24th, 1917 in Arkansas, and she was the only child to Frank and Lana Tolliver. Lana is listed as living at the same address as her father, but what few records I could find, he remarried several times, so I'm not sure if Lana was her actual mother or if it was, like, Frank's wife at the time. I couldn't find any records of her at all. Apparently, Edna had quite the hectic childhood because if her father is to be believed, she was stolen when she was just three years old, and he could not locate her until, quote, latter years. So I don't know what that's about. Mm-hmm. But... Interestingly, um, he says that uh, her family social and economic status was, quote, quiet, um, which would indicate she, like, was around. Like, if she had a childhood and a family, you know, she would have been around. I don't know. That, to be quite frank, I don't, I don't know what the truth about her childhood is. So we for sure lose track of her for about 25 years. She moved west at some point in the intervening years, and she also gets married to someone named Hester, but I couldn't find any records detailing this marriage or who the husband was. It is, of course, possible as well that Hester, she didn't marry anyone by that name, and that was just a, a an alias that she used. Couldn't find record either way. The first bit of evidence that I find for sure of her is in Las Vegas, Nevada on September 25th, 1948, when she is arrested for vagrancy. And from there, things do not get any better for about the next decade. She is next arrested in Bakersfield, California for being drunk. She was fined $30 or 15 days in jail. At this incident, she was actually arrested with a man named Jesse T. Cleveland, who was arrested for shouting and talking to inmates in the county jail and was sentenced to 15 days in jail himself. So it sounds like they were probably just drunk and, like, wandering around Bakersfield and, like, came across the jail and being intoxicated, he starts, like, yelling to the inmates and the inmates start yelling back. And so kind of a a funny little arrest there from California, she moved south to Arizona, where she got in plenty of trouble. On April 27th, 1949, she actually got in an argument with a woman named Mrs. Agnes Nelson in Navajo County, Arizona. According to the Arizona Daily Star, quote, a 31-year-old woman is being held in Navajo County Jail here on charges of assault with a deadly weapon following the shooting of Mrs. Edna May Hester, 31, last Saturday. Mrs. Hester, who suffered a bullet wound in the abdomen, was reported recovering in a Phoenix hospital. The shooting followed an argument over a gas bill. Mrs. Hester took offense at Mrs. Nelson's charging the gas bill to a local resident. The two women met outside Pine Top, Arizona. In the scuffle that followed, Mrs. Hester was shot, according to the undersheriff. So it's kind of a like a weird thing for Edna to be mad about, and I don't know if maybe... Edna was living with someone and the gas bill got charged to that person. I don't know. But what we do see for sure is um, we're starting to see the fact that Edna might have a bit of a temper problem. 
Obviously, she lives after being shot in the stomach, but um, that's what we've got there. So in December 14th, so that's about eight months later, she's first arrested in Phoenix for shoplifting, given a $20 fine and 25 days in jail. But interestingly, just four days later, on December 18th, she is arrested again in Phoenix for disturbing the peace and given the same sentence. Uh, she gets in a lot of trouble, and that that pattern is not going to change. After her release in Arizona, she heads into the Midwest. She is held in Junction City, Kansas for a health test in May 1950, which again is usually a sex work slash prostitution hold, but uh, no evidence to suggest one way or the other. She then is arrested in Great Bend, Kansas, two months later in July 1950 for drunkenness and sentenced to 30 days in jail. In November 1950, she is arrested in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. She's held for investigation of fictitious license plates. And a month later, in December 1950, she is arrested in Cheyenne, Wyoming for theft and vagrancy. Then, in March 1951, she is arrested in Rollins, Wyoming, for assault with intent to commit murder. Um, Couldn't find any details on that. Both charges in Wyoming were listed on her FBI file as pending, though it seems she was sentenced to 8 to 10 months in the county jail for the assault charge. There weren't any newspaper articles I could find detailing that, but, you know, her, her spree continues. Because from Wyoming, she heads to Idaho. And she is first arrested on September 7th, 1951 in Idaho Falls for disturbing the peace and booked under the name Edna Mae Baylor. Um, And by the time she is received in the Idaho State Penitentiary, there are pending charges on that crime. So from Idaho Falls, she heads to Pocatello, where there was a substantial African-American population. So I'm going to take a pause real quick. In 1950, the overall population in Pocatello was about 26,131. The African-American population in the whole state at that same year was about 1,050, and a majority of them were either in Boise or Pocatello. Now, I have actually discussed African-Americans in Pocatello slash the state of Idaho in Season 3, Episode 4 with Josephine Fort. In fact, Josephine and Edna were actually arrested in the same year, making it likely that they at the very least knew of each other if they didn't know each other in you know sort of a a small population in relative terms of the rest of the population so despite the you know fairly substantial african-american population for the state pocatello was not the free sort of non-racist bastion that we might suppose it was so According to Mamie O. Oliver, who is the author of the article Idaho Ebony, the African-American Presence in Idaho State History, some of Pocatello's public schools were integrated from sort of the beginning. And um, in Josephine Ford's episode, I also discussed some black organizations that existed in the town. So if you want more details about that, then feel free to hop over there and listen to that. But I found some uh, some other interesting information about sort of the African-American experience in Idaho and, and Pocatello at the time. So the town, despite the fact that there was some integration, there were black organizations, the town suffered from what is called redlining. And that is is a result of a federal housing policy that worked to essentially keep African Americans out of the housing market and seal off specific areas of town where only blacks or other people of color could live. So Hmm. how it worked is, you know, people basically had the, the town 
uh, sort of elites and the real estate people had a map of the town. And basically, a neighborhood would be what was called green-lined if it was considered like a good investment. So an area where the values of houses are going up um, and where homeowners could actually get loans from the bank and uh, race unfortunately, determine that. In other words, if the neighborhood was all white, it was green-lined. And with certain percentages of people of color, the neighborhoods would be, quote-unquote, downgraded from yellow to orange to red, and red was a predominantly black neighborhood. In red-line neighborhoods, the residents there could not qualify for federal security of bank loans, so banks would not give African Americans good loan rates, making home ownership incredibly difficult for the residents of that neighborhood. And you know this happened all over the country, and of course Pocatello and Idaho is not exempt from that. So in Pocatello, the kind of red-lined main black neighborhood was between Pocatello Avenue, Center Street, and 1st and 3rd Streets. It's not a very big area, actually, if you go look at a, a map on a map of that area today. White residents refer to this area by many different names, and by the 1940s and 50s, it would have been known as the Iron Triangle. And it's called that because those sort of sections, that those cross streets, make like a triangle in town. After World War II, an airbase in Pocatello brought airmen who doubled the black population in the town. There is an interview between Gemma Gaudet, who's the host of Idaho Matters, and Professor Dr. Jill Gill of Boise State University. She's a history professor there. And Dr. Gill said of the post-World War II segregation, quote, They came back to an Idaho that really mimicked a kind of Jim Crow, sometimes called James Crow. So we didn't have school segregation here because there weren't enough African Americans to be practical, but there were public accommodations segregation that was pretty widespread in restaurants, hotels. Playground equipment in Pocatello was pretty much off-limits to black kids. The YMCA was off-limits there. Many theaters either kept black people out or they had to sit in a special section, this is all in Idaho, Boise, and Pocatello. Black people were not allowed to try on clothes or return clothing from department stores. There was job discrimination, housing segregation, which was rampant, end quote. You can either hear Dr. Gill actually say that in her own words, or you can find a transcription of this interview at boisestatepublicradio.com. And again, the article is titled The Best of Idaho in 2020, Why Idaho's Racist History Matters. You can either listen to the audio on that Boise State Public Radio, or you can find the episode through the Idaho Matters podcast, uh, where the episode was first aired on August 13th, 2020. And the episode is a conversation about how racism in Idaho's past can help us deal with and understand racism uh, in the present. And Dr. Gill also stated around that time that the white media often tended to make a much bigger deal about crime done by black people than other white criminals received, even though blacks made up a much smaller percentage of the population and black criminals were an even smaller percentage of crime. So I did find a really interesting resource. If you're interested in hearing stories from African-Americans in Pocatello, Boise, and other areas in Idaho, then I want to recommend the Idaho State Historical Society Ethnic History Collection, which is at the Washington State Digital Collections. And I was able to get into it just by searching that. So it should be accessible to everyone. And this collection has photographs, including several photos of African-American residents in Pocatello, as well as several audio files of oral histories, 
And those oral histories are not just from African Americans, but from Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, and Basque residents of the state. So if you're interested in learning more about people of color and minorities in Idaho, I think that collection would be well worth your time to check out. So um, this is the Pocatello that Edna, who we are learning, has quite the troubled past and a potential anger problem, is living in. So, um, so far, not a recipe for success. So, an article appeared in the Idaho State Journal on May 1st, 1952, stating that Edna May Hester of 241 North 2nd Avenue was charged with assault after stabbing a woman named Flora Appenay. On April 30th, Flora Appenay was sitting at the bar in the Porters and Waiters Club when Edna walked up behind her and stabbed her just below the ribs. Witnesses say there had been no argument between the two women before the stabbing occurred. Flora was taken to St. Anthony's Hospital, but was later released without serious wounds. Three days later, Edna entered a plea of innocent. Her bond was set at $150, and in lieu of bond, she was committed to the jail. I'm not really sure what came of this charge. Interestingly, there are a lot of newspaper articles about her charges, but very few that sort of follow up on those charges. She somehow seems to get out of a lot of these because she'll, like, commit a crime and it'll say, you know, she was put in jail. But then, like, a few days later or a few months later, she's, like, out on the streets again. So I apologize for the lack of that. For whatever reason, they didn't seem to write follow-ups to these. So uh, only a few months later, she's back in the newspapers. On September 4th, 1952, she brought a complaint against a man named Frank Allen, who was actually her landlord, charging him with malicious mischief. She alleged that he removed the doors of her house at 326 East Lander to force her to move. Um, He claims that he removed them just to repair them. Don't know what came to pass about that charge either, but she filed it against him. So again, I mean, she's just volatile. Like, with every charge, she just kind of, we get this, you know, this uh, more complete picture of her temper, basically. So that charge that she filed was in September. Then, on December 15th, the Idaho State Journal published an article titled, Man Hit by Axe During Quarrel. This is a quote from the newspaper. Quote, Melvin Clay, 21, whose address is given at 326 East Lander, which, if you remember, was the address she gave, where Frank Allen was her landlord, He was struck alongside the head with a broad axe Sunday during a quarrel at the home of Edna May Hester, 326 East Lander. Police officers said Clay suffered severe bruises and cuts when struck by the flat side of the axe. Edna May Hester was arrested on an intoxication charge and sentenced to 15 days in the city jail while police continued their investigation. Officer George Lonebar found the axe hidden under the house and said it was placed there by Edna May, end quote. Mm-hmm. Melvin was treated at the Bannock Memorial Hospital and released. A few days later, he actually returned a second time, but he was released again, and he survived his wounds. Because, I mean, he's lucky that she struck him with the flat side of the axe and not the blade, because he would be dead. Jeez. Oh, I mean, just the flat side is deadly. Yeah, bad oh, enough. Bad yeah. enough. So she was sent to jail for this charge, but was released 10 days later on Christmas Day, 1952. What? 
But she had a really bad Christmas day. This is from the Ogden Standard Examiner. Quote, oh, no. Miss Edna May Hester was given a Christmas day release from Bannock County Jail where she had been serving a sentence for intoxication. She rushed home and stoked the fire in her apartment stove. The fire matched her enthusiasm and spread to the rest of the apartment. End quote. So the Idaho State Journal reported that the overheated stove set the front room on fire and caused extensive damage in the three-unit apartment. And um, the firemen came, they put it out. They actually had to return that afternoon to extinguish a fire still burning in the chimney. And this is continued from the Ogden Standard Examiner, quote, Burned out of her home, Miss Hester philosophically commented, I guess I can always go back to jail. Oh. She was homeless just 45 minutes after leaving jail, end quote. So, um, not a, not a great time that she's having in December of that year. So, after this unfortunate event, it seems that Edna headed east to Montana for most of the year of 1953. There is one exception, and that was her arrest in Burley in June 1953 for disturbing the peace, and she was booked under the name Edna May Clay. Now, that's Melvin's last name, the guy she hit with the axe. Oh, yeah, that's right. I don't know. I mean, her whole life is so confusing, and her, like, relationships (laughs) with men make no sense to me. So she was arrested in Burley in June. Then in September, the Great Falls Tribune in Great Falls, Montana, said, quote, Edna Mae Hester, 35, and David C. Weeks, 22, arrested on charges of creating a disturbance by using loud and profane language, were fined a total of $75 in police court. The woman drew a $50 fine and Weeks, 25, end quote. About eight weeks later, on October 28th, so about two months later, in Billings, Montana, she pleaded not guilty to the charges of drunkenness and disturbance. She was arrested in a bar on Minnesota Avenue in Billings and was set to go to trial on November 6th. It seems that there was no follow-through with this charge because two weeks later, on November 14th, Edna pleaded guilty to vagrancy. She was given a 60-day suspended sentence on the condition that she leave town, according to the Billings Gazette. And leave she did. And in August 1954, Edna was convicted of trespassing in the Earl Hotel in Salt Lake City, Utah, and she was to serve five days in jail. I mean, this girl, she's never out of the newspapers because after her release from Utah, she returns to Pocatello, where she appeared in the Idaho State Journal in December 1954. Quote, a self-styled Texas Ranger whom a Pocatello Avenue woman said kicked down her door early this morning after she refused him admittance was being sought today by the police. An Idaho Falls man and another from Seattle were being held in county jail after Edna May Hester, 340 Pocatello, charged them with malicious destruction of property following the door-kicking incident at 2.45 a.m. She said the third man, unidentified, had flashed a badge and said he was a Texas Ranger. The woman called the police about 3 a.m., saying that three men kicked down her door, breaking it in two, after she refused to admit them in their home, and at first refused to leave, but fled when she called the police. End quote. Jeez. So she just has like weird. So she'll she'll kind of go. She'll get arrested, 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 and then she'll have this like weird experience with like her house, and then she'll kind of get back into crime. It's it is a very weird life pattern that she has going on. So this weird kicking in fake Texas Ranger event is nothing compared to what 1955 held in store for her. 
So this is an article that appeared in the Herald Journal from Logan, Utah. Quote, Claude H. Williams, 36, Pocatello, remains in poor condition today after being partially blinded when a boiling mixture of lye and water was thrown in his face. A 37-year-old Pocatello woman, Edna May Hester, was arrested and charged with assault with a chemical with intent to disfigure in connection with the incident. Hospital attendants said Williams lost the sight of his left eye, and it was believed he would also be blinded in his other eye, end quote. Jeez. I know. According to the Bannock County prosecuting attorney Hugh C. McGuire Jr., Edna and Claude had been living together, but they hadn't been married. It was so what I kept finding in her living arrangements was that she would live in like an apartment complex or like basically it would be like a house that would have sort of three different apartments in it but obviously they were also close together they were it was almost sort of like a roommate situation so yeah. they say like they were living together but like she was in sort of one unit and he was in another unit so they did have their own separate spaces but like technically they were living in the same place this is a little bit of i think her words um of the offense so on the evening of the offense claude struck and hit edna after they had been drinking together he also took money a little over a dollar from her purse and spent the money on another woman edna was in her apartment lying down when claude returned from being out with that other woman and he pounded on the door demanding to be let in so she she had actually been in bed she got out she let him into the apartment he got into her bed with her clothes on and she took issue with this and we know that she has a very bad temper and she told him to leave and he said no he turned over and he went to sleep and as he's sleeping she prepares a hot water and lye mixture and threw it in his face while he was sleeping she was immediately arrested on a drunkenness charge, but Justice of the Peace Charles Hyde said she would be charged with assault with chemicals and held on a $3,000 bail. She waived a preliminary hearing on the assault charge. At the time of her arrest, the Daily Statesman notes that files at the sheriff's office listed 26 different arrests since March 1952. Now remember, this is 1955. So it's only been three years. She was arrested 26 times. The Daily Statesman said, quote, on charges ranging from assault and battery to disturbing the peace. So she is running the gamut of crime. Now, we have official records of, and so far I have discussed, 18 charges, meaning that there are six on record that I didn't have access to. But again, this sort of speaks to, I think, her temper, to, I think, perhaps how troubled she might be. If, I mean, I don't. where do you even start? Mm-hmm. So by July 6th, uh, which is only a couple of days, this, uh, this event, I didn't put the date, but it happened, uh, like, I think July 2nd. Um, so just a few days later, by July 6th, Claude's condition had improved. Doctors thought the vision in his right eye would be near normal, but vision in his left eye may be limited to some light perception. And it was originally believed that he would be completely blinded, so this is good news. So on July 14th, Edna was sentenced to the Idaho State Penitentiary for an indefinite term not to exceed 14 years. She entered the State Penitentiary a day later on July 15th, 1955, and this is going to be her first penitentiary term. So her intake form, Edna May Hester, number 9202, sentenced 14 years for assault with chemical. She pleaded guilty. 
County Bannock. Uh, her race is listed as Negro, and again, that is their term, not mine. She was 37 years old, height uh, 66 and a half, so 5 foot 6 inches, weight 155, eyes brown, hair black, complexion, and again, not my term, dark negress. Her occupation was listed as cook and housekeeper. She listed her marital status as married with no children, and her education was quit in the eighth grade. Now, that's the only information we have about her education, so um, that's why I didn't really include it. The Bertillion shows scars from a bullet wound in her stomach, which is probably the shooting in Arizona, a bullet scar on her elbow, a razor blade scar on her left arm, and a cut on her left eyeball from a shard of glass that left her vision impaired. Oh, so, wow. you know, these are, yeah, so these are things that we didn't, you know, like, we don't have record of. They're just probably, like, fights that she gets into. Razor blade scar, another bullet scar. I mean, she is in trouble all the time. Yeah. So, immediately after her entrance into prison, authorities sent her father a survey to ask about her past and her other habits. Now, as I said, because she'd been out of her father's home for so long, he didn't have enough information to give them, and like I said, he answered most of those questions, don't know. He stated she was married, just separated, and had graduated high school in Little Rock, but couldn't remember the name of the school. But again, she said she dropped out in eighth grade, so there's a little bit of misremembering on someone's part. Mm. They asked what her ambitions were, and he answered, quote, to work and make an honest living as far as I know, end quote, um, which proves that he maybe doesn't know much. Asked about her work history, he said, quote, taxi driving and ins- insurance agent, end quote. I could not find any documentation to prove this, and he didn't really have anything either. There, One of the questions is, they ask, like, what do you think is the chief reason for their misconduct? And he said that she was just misled. And added to the front of the survey, quote, If there's anything I can do toward getting her, please, sir, let me know. And if she is permitted to write, tell her to write to 1521 Missouri Street, Pine Bluffs, Arkansas, her father, Frank Tolliver. She is a good girl. Please make it as light as you can on her. And it seems that her father probably didn't know much about her criminal history, because uh, she's maybe not as good as he would hope. <sighs> That's like any parent, I feel like. Most of those are like, oh, it was a great home, and like they were great at school, and they had a lot of friends. Yeah. And then the prisoner's uh, own personal social history is like, oh, I didn't have many friends. I dropped out at this time. Mm-hmm. So often. So, yeah. so on April 18th, 1956, the Board of Correction grants a parole effective June 15th, 1956, and she was indeed released on that day. But just three days later, on June 18th, uh, she was declared a parole violator and returned the next day from Pocatello. Now, sadly, her father had actually bought a train ticket to come to Boise and to bring Edna back to Arkansas, but Warden Clapp had to return it to him because of her parole violation. And so Clapp informed Tolliver, her father, that she would have to serve another year for her parole violation before she would be considered for a release. A year later, she was granted a final release on July 8th, 1957. She was not even released on a parole. And I think that's because this is around the time the women's ward is really filling up. And so they kind of just have to start getting people out to fit more people in. 
And, you know, you may be asking why someone with a record was first paroled, then released after serving only one year, 11 months, and 22 days. And as I said, it's because the women's ward was incredibly full. So when Edna entered, there were 16 women incarcerated, and the women's ward could sort of, quote-unquote, comfortably hold 16 people. So she makes 17. By her first parole, seven women had been discharged, five had been booked in, so the total is 15. And then during her stay, another five entered and only three left, so meaning by the time she left on July 8th, 1957, there were 14 women in the women's ward. It's just full, they just have to start getting people out. So after her release, Edna heads back to Pocatello, but guess who can't stay out of trouble? On August 14th, 1957, a month and six days after she is released from the state penitentiary. This is from the Idaho State Journal on August 15th. Quote, Mary Goulson, 26, 318 and a half, North 3rd, died early this morning at Bannock Memorial Hospital of knife wounds, and neighbor Edna May Hester is being held in Bannock County Jail for investigation. The stabbing took place in front of 336 North Pocatello Avenue, police said, about 11.20 p.m. Wednesday. It is the fourth death by violence here since May. The weapon is believed to have been a kitchen knife. So, according to that... Idaho State Journal article, Edna denied the stabbing. Quote, she said three white men had visited her and Mary Goulson Wednesday evening, and that when they left, one complained of missing $20. The report added that Mrs. Hester said an argument went on in front of the house, and it was there that Mary was stabbed. Mrs. Hester did not say who did the stabbing, end quote. An Idaho State Journal article on August 16th stated that police thought the stabbing was over a fight about a man. So uh, this was from, again, that article, this was sort of the police's story, that basically both women had been drinking, and after the stabbing, Mary actually staggered out in the street and hailed a cab driver named Dean Hearn, and she actually, Mary, had two stab wounds, one in her abdomen and one in her right thigh. When Mary got to the hospital, she told the desk sergeant, Curtis R. Hall, quote, Edna May Hester cut me, end quote. They did try to perform surgery to save her life, but she died at 2.28 a.m. Edna was immediately charged with voluntary manslaughter and sentenced to eight years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Now, she was charged with voluntary manslaughter instead of first-degree murder, which originally they did want to charge her, but the evidence pointed to the fact that the stabbing was done in the heat of the moment rather than premeditated. Now, she entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on August 15, 1957, the day after she did it. Her stats were actually pretty much the same because... She came back a month after she was released. And during her second tenure, she was the 15th inmate in the women's ward. So again, again, I keep trying to, like, things have not changed, but things have not changed because it's a month later. During her second tenure, 14 inmates actually left the prison, but 19 inmates were booked in in that same period. Jeez. By the time she was released on April 18th, 1960, there were 17 women in the women's ward, making them over capacity by one. So you can see this is a time that there's just a lot of, of people there. I don't know that much about her second stay at the Idaho State Penitentiary. She did apply for parole in March 1959, and that was denied. And she applied again a year later, um, and she was given release, as I said, on April 18, 1960. She served two years, eight months, and four days on her eight-year charge of voluntary manslaughter. Wow. So really, she only served about 
four years total for both of these attacks, as it were. But wait, there's more. Oh, what? <laughs> it's I'm t- like I thought it was done after her second charge, and then all of these uh, other newspaper articles. I was just like, this girl is um, troubled. So. Um, A few months later, so she's released April 18th, 1960. On June 3rd, 1960, she marries a man named Harold Downing in Pocatello. Harold was three years her senior. He was from Marshall, Texas, which is actually east of Dallas toward the Arkansas border. An article from the Idaho State Journal on July 17th, 1960, quote, Edna Mae Hester Downing, 236 North 3rd, booked on a cutting incident which took place in her home Tuesday, forfeited a $100 bond, end quote. And again, details of this crime and the arrests are never explained in the newspapers that I could find. Then, the Idaho State Journal on September 12, 1960, quote, A Pocatello man was stabbed in the abdomen today during an altercation on the east side. Chief of Detectives Glenn Hadley said Edna May Hester Downing, 236 North 3rd, was questioned about the incident but was later released when the victim refused to sign a complaint. Jess Cooksey, Idaho Falls, was treated at Bannock Memorial Hospital for a superficial wound and later released. Police said the stabbing was reported at 10.17 a.m. and apparently occurred at Mrs. Downing's residence, end quote. So, again, nothing came of this. The victim ended up dropping that that charge. Then, Idaho State Journal, October 10th, 1960, a month later, quote, Edna May Hester Downing and Horace Smith, both of 236 South 3rd, were arrested by police for assault with a deadly weapon and placed in the Bannock County Jail on $5,000 bond each. Signing the complaint before Justice of the Peace, William J. Ryan, was Charles Nichols, 32, Blackfoot. He told the police he was shot in the Downing home Sunday afternoon. Police were unable to find the wound, though Nichols had some blood on his head. A Pocatello physician said there were small lacerations on his head, apparently caused from a blow. Y.D. Black, chief of the Identification Bureau, said the facts of the case were not clear. He said police will continue their investigation. It is the second time in three days that Mrs. Downing has been charged with assault. She was arrested Friday and charged with beating another Pocatellan, Arthur Poole Jr., end quote. And if you think that that would have stopped her actions in 1960, you would be wrong. Somehow, despite her arrest for the second time in three days in October, she was out by November. From the Idaho State Journal, November 7, 1960, quote, A 28-year-old man was shot in the neck with a 22 pistol Sunday at the residence of Edna May Hester Downing, 236 North 3rd. Officer H.J. Moldenauer identified the man as Horace Smith, who, if you remember, was booked with her in October. And Horace Smith also listed his address as 236 North 3rd. Smith was taken to St. Anthony Hospital, where he was listed in poor condition. Moldenauer said Smith was shot just above the collarbone and through the left side of the neck. Moldenauer said Smith told him Mrs. Downing shot him, but she denied any part of the incident. She was placed in the Bannock County Jail on a charge of assault with a deadly weapon. Police found a 22 pistol in Mrs. Downing's kitchen inside a sack of potatoes. There were five discharged shells and four good ones with the pistol. End quote. Next day, she asked for a preliminary hearing on charges of assault with a deadly weapon and for being a persistent violator, because she is truly a persistent violator. That is three assault charges in three months, which I, again, like, I don't understand how she keeps getting out. Like that one that she was arrested with Horace Smith, they had $5,000 bond. 
she clearly isn't able to keep a job who's bailing her out and the other thing that i don't understand is where her husband is in all of this there is no mention even though they keep her name there is no mention of him sort of existing after this marriage record i don't know after she shoots horse smith in the neck her bond was set at three thousand dollars and i'm not totally sure what happened because by december she's out of jail again what what's happening what's going on what i mean at this point like she has a permanent residence in the county jail. Like, how are they not, like, doing something about it? I'm so, I honestly am so baffled by this whole thing. So, somehow, despite the fact that he had been shot by Edna, Horace Smith remained in the apartment, and they continued to have issues with each other because Idaho State Journal, December 18th, 1960, quote, Edna May Hester Downing, 236 North 3rd, was charged with malicious destruction of private property in a complaint signed by Horace Smith, also of 236 North 3rd. Smith said in the complaint that Mrs. Downing burned three of his suits and other articles of clothing. Justice of the Peace Charles Hyde said the loss charged is less than $60, making the charges against Mrs. Downing a misdemeanor. If the loss had been $60 or greater, she would have been cited for a felony. End quote. And so that's how she avoided at least prison time in that particular regard. She did go to jail. But two days later, December 20th, 1960, Idaho State Journal, quote, a television set and a hi-fi, which is like a radio for those who don't know, and a hi-fi set are missing from the home of Edna May Hester Downing, 236 North 3rd, police said. Lorene Ginlack reported the items missing to police. He said he and Horace Smith have been staying at the Downing home for the past few days. Mrs. Downing is in the Bannock County Jail charged with malicious destruction of private property. So, I don't know what happened about this malicious destruction of private property. I do know that on December 30th, she was released from custody after charges of assault with a deadly weapon, which is that incident from November 7th when she shot Horace. Those charges were dismissed. Which, like, as Horace, you get shot in the neck and you're like, I don't have anywhere else to go. I guess I'll just go back. Like, my friend, what are you doing? They were arrested together for assault with a deadly weapon in October, so he knows that she's capable of plenty of trouble. They somehow both get released, then she shoots him in the neck. So not only does he know that she's capable of trouble, he now knows she's got a temper, she can, like, she'll do anything, basically, that she wants. And he still chooses to go back, and then, like, is, like, shocked and goes to the police (sighs) when she, like, burns his stuff. Like, I mean, I guess he may not have had anywhere else to go. It is... Pocatello in sort of the the Jim Crow, James Crow era, but surely there's somewhere else you could go. So, thankfully, we do lose track of her for a little bit, but we find her again in July 1961, when several articles about her appear in the Herald Bulletin, which is a newspaper from Burley, and this is on July 3rd. The title of the newspaper article is, quote, Police Probe Stabbing a Burley Man. End quote. And again, that's burly, like from burly, not like a big burly man. <laughs> so on the evening of July 1st, an African-American man named Jerry Williams, he was a shoe shine operator from Burley, was hosting a late night party at his home at 635 Conant Avenue when he was stabbed once in the stomach. The police were called to the home at 8.15 a.m. where they discovered the injured man and rushed him to the hospital. And the police began questioning everyone at the party and almost immediately arrested Edna, but the newspaper article did say, quote, the assailant has not been identified. If I mean, I would bet, honestly, 
she has a reputation wherever she goes. Yeah. And oh, yeah. that out of precaution, you just sort of arrest her and like, we'll figure it out later. And so Jerry was in serious condition when he was hospitalized on Sunday. The knife wound had punctured three intestines and damaged his spleen, which required surgery. And four days later, Edna was indeed charged with assault with a deadly weapon with intent to commit murder. So the Herald Herald Bulletin on July 7th gives a more complete story. And this is actually, this comes from Jerry Williams himself. Quote, Williams told Floyd F. Higgins, who was a Burley police officer, that the woman came round from Caldwell and moved in on him last Thursday night. The wounded man said that he was lying on a bed when the woman, being Edna, got off the lap of another man, walked over to the bed, and drove a butcher knife to the hilt into his stomach, and that she then returned to the lap of the man. An unexplained prelude to the stabbing was a fire which destroyed the woman's car, a 1956 Oldsmobile, parked near 635 Conant at 7.15 a.m. Sunday. What? Um, yeah. So, basically, the, the theory is that her car was set fire to, she thought it was him, so she stabbed him, and then, like, just sort of carried on as if nothing had happened. Wow. Uh, yeah. So... <laughs> Her bond was set at $1,500, and a preliminary trial was to take place over the next few weeks. A July 21st article from the Herald Bulletin gives an even more complete story of Edna May and the crime. Quote, Edna May Downing, 43, could tell a grim story of her life and the unfortunate men in it, but she won't. What is this about? She asked as Deputy Sheriff F. Heilig swung open the door of her cell in the Casha County Jail. I don't want my picture taken, she quickly made clear. Asked if she would answer a few questions for a story, she answered, Oh, the big shebang, huh? I'm not guilty. I don't know what happened. I didn't cut him. Asked if she was drunk when the stabbing occurred, she answered, I pleaded guilty to drunk and disturbing the peace. Her dark eyes smoldered as she was asked if she had lived in Idaho most of her life. I don't care to talk about that anymore. Hadn't she been in the Idaho prison twice? There was not an answer as she shuttered her eyes and leaned back on a mattress and puffed on a cigarette. There was no reply when asked if she were a miss or a missus. Her morose face was not unattractive in spite of a vivid scar on her dark forehead. There was a glint of gold in her teeth. Dressed in something besides the shapeless red dress and with shoes to cover her bare feet, dangling over the edge of the mattress, her figure would be passable. Russ, she yelled, I want a lawyer. I want to call one. I've been in here three weeks and I haven't had one. That ended the interview, and the story of her life must be deduced from an FBI report from the U.S. Department of Justice, which lists each time her fingerprints have been sent to Washington, D.C. There were reportedly four persons, three men and the woman, all Negroes, at a house rented by Williams at 635 Conan Avenue the morning that the stabbing occurred. Williams told Higgins that he was lying on a bed when the woman got off the lap of another man, walked over to the bed, and drove a butcher knife to the hilt into his stomach and returned to the lap of the other man. Surgery for the deep wound required the removal of Williams' spleen. End quote. Which, that's a great article, because that's the only time that we get to hear her words directly and get sort of an idea of uh, what she looks like, sort of her attitude. She yells for a prison guard, Russ, she calls him by his name. Like, she she has been in there several times. Yeah, Yeah, totally. But I, I kind of, I think that's a really interesting article and one that we don't get uh, for women very often. So yeah. Um, and her smoldering eyes, like I, her I was smoldering eyes, that wearing yeah. this formless dress and uh-huh. yeah, very descriptive. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. Very good writing. Um, 
So on August 4th, she was charged with assault with a deadly weapon, um, but it was actually dropped because of insufficient testimony. There was a subpoena that was issued for a certain witness, but that witness could never be found. And so Jerry Williams also, quote, testified that he had been drinking and he honestly couldn't say that she was the one who stabbed him, end quote. So you think she's done yet? Well, she's not. Because by 1962, she moved to Washington State, where the Spokane Chronicle found her on June 15th, 1962. The title of the article is Things Get a Little Chilly Over Chilly. <laughs> Just Uh-oh. a great oh, title. No. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, one person went to a hospital and another to jail early today over an incident involving a bowl of chili. Neil N. Stamness, 55, was treated at Sacred Heart Hospital for two head cuts. Edna Mae Downing, 44, was booked by police on a drunkenness charge. This is what police reported apparently happened at the Pied Piper Cafe, West 221 Main, shortly after 1 a.m. Mrs. Downing ordered a bowl of chili and was about to eat it in a booth when Stamness came along. She said he stuck his finger into the chili. He said he didn't. She ordered another bowl of chili and told the police she was about to eat it when Stamness came along and broke onto the table some of the crackers which came with the chili. Police said Mrs. Downing cracked Stamness on the head with a sugar shaker. End quote. Oh my gosh. Which is the craziest. Like, <sighs> this guy, I mean, he had to have been drunk too to just like walk over and just like stick your finger in someone's chili unless you have some sort of beef with them, but... We don't get any details of that. That's such a bully thing to do. Like, (laughs) totally, totally. Hey, enjoy your chili. Yeah. And then he like smashes the crackers that came with it. She just wants to eat her chili, man. (sighs) Her response is very NMA too. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, first she, she does actually show some restraint, which I think is, perhaps uncharacteristic she you know gets another one and then it's when he does it the second time that it's like all right that's enough of that so we next find her in september 1962 do you want to guess what she was arrested for oh no more fighting yeah assault by stabbing so a a man named merle l leonard went with some friends to a home on 1w pacific west one pacific and so they go to the home to get a drink at about 2 p.m on september 10th 1962 guess who lived there edna may hester downing so from the spokesman review quote he said as he got up to leave a woman identified as edna may downing shoved him he said he didn't realize he'd been stabbed until he felt blood running in his shoe he went for help and collapsed after walking a block and a half end quote seems to be no reason for that at all because i think it sounded like this guy kind of came into town and was like out drinking and just with some friends and she just randomly stabbed him i don't know A month later, on October 10th, Edna was arraigned before Judge Hugh H. Evans and entered a plea of innocent to the charge of second-degree assault, according to the Spokesman Chronicle, on October 10th. On December 7th, 1962, the Spokesman Review said she actually had pleaded guilty, but that her sentence was delayed, quote, until the possibility of psychiatric treatment had been investigated, end quote. Hmm. By January 1963, however, she was sentenced to one year in jail for third-degree assault, a misdemeanor, and ordered to undergo a psychiatric examination. Judge Ralph E. Foley stated he reserved the right to suspend part of the jail time if Edna May and those doctors and psychiatrists who treated her presented a satisfactory rehabilitation program. And it is from here that I actually lose track of her. 
I searched Ancestry, I searched Daily Statesman articles, I searched newspapers in sort of the, the three various names that we know her by, whether by Tolliver, Hester, or Downing, and I couldn't find anyone that would have been her. So my guess is she probably got married again and then was booked under that name in the future because it doesn't seem possible that after 20 years of like random assaults and arrests that she would have just stopped committing crimes unless she passed away. But I didn't find any evidence of that either. There wasn't a, a find a grave or any sort of death certificate that I found. So I just, she, she's kind of lost to the records, but that is the story of Edna May Hester. Wow. Someone who's just kind of incapable of rehabilitation, it seems like, or finding mm-hmm. people who aren't going to upset her so much that she's going to resort to extreme violence. Like, oh. I mean, it's like, it's, it's when, you know, when you sort of read them back to back, it's almost comical. But then when you sort of take a step back and realize that this is just month after month of physical altercation, like this is someone who has a lot of issues in her life. And that is not those Mm -hmm. issues are not being taken care of instead of getting her psychiatric help. And maybe that's the other thing that happened is maybe she did get psychiatric help and was able to sort of maybe not fix her life totally, but to um, perhaps recognize and get help for the issues that she was having. Yeah. Just time after time of just like the only solution we have for this woman is to throw her in jail. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't fix anything. That just, you know, takes them off the street for, you know, apparently in many of these instances, less than a month. Well, good works, guy. That's a difficult story. That's a lot to bounce around from. It was a lot, yeah. So many and and this, to cover. like I said, I did actually didn't know that she was so violent. Like I knew the crime of the throwing the lie in the face, and I was like, that's a rough, yeah, crime. So she probably isn't the best of women. But I didn't like I didn't have access to newspapers dot com before uh, I did the research for this, and I, like I typed in I think Edna May Hester, and it was just all of these articles, and I was just like, oh no, this girl is in so deep. Um, <sighs> And then I searched, I searched uh, Edna Mae Downing and I was just like, oh my gosh, how is there more? Yeah, it was quite, quite the search for this girl. So I'm, I'm glad wow. I found what I did. Yeah. I'm surprised that there aren't any write-ups that she didn't get into mm-hmm. in that close, tiny confinement of the women's ward that, you know, she mm. didn't blow her top and get written up, you know, a bunch of times yeah, in there. That's true. But... Yeah, I, there wasn't much in her file actually by way of sort of any sort of write-up or or anything like that. Other than the one woman that she stabbed that was supposedly over a man, every person mm-hmm. she attacked was a man. Right. So she may not have had issues with women. It may have been something that something about men that set her off for whatever reason. I, I mean, I don't know. It's not it's it's not very often that I I find as much stuff as you find. Yeah, right? Oh my gosh. Well, maybe one day we'll switch and I'll tell uh, one of your lady's stories and you can tell one of the men's stories and we'll we'll see complete we'll see yeah <laughs> all right everybody thank you for listening tuning in learn some more idaho history and old pen history do your own time do your own number if you enjoyed behind gray walls please rate review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show but it helps others find us as well If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. 
You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. 